Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin. If you enjoy Unchained or Unconfirmed, my other podcast, which now features a weekly news recap for every interview, please give us a top rating or review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show. CypherTrace cutting-edge cryptocurrency intelligence powers anti-money laundering, blockchain analytics, and threat intel. Leading exchanges, virtual currency businesses, banks, and regulators themselves use CypherTrace to comply with regulation and to monitor compliance. Crypto.com. Get their app and buy crypto at true cost with no fees or markups. Get a metal MCO Visa card with up to 5% back on all your spending. Want more? Download the Crypto.com app today. Kraken is the best exchange in the world for buying and selling digital assets. It has the tightest security, deep liquidity, and a great fee structure with no minimum or hidden fees. Whether you're looking for a simple fiat on-ramp or futures trading, Kraken is the place for you. Today's guests are Carolyn Chan, Chief Strategy Officer at CoinMarketCap, and Gerald Chi, Head of Research there. Welcome, Carolyn and Gerald. Hey, Laura. Thanks for having us. Hey, Laura. Nice to be here. So uh, there's probably no need for a huge introduction, but why don't we start with the most basic question, which is what is CoinMarketCap? Yes. So CoinMarketCap is basically the place you go to when you want to find information about cryptocurrencies and crypto exchanges. So last year, we had about 125 million users and 3.6 billion page views ending the year with that with those numbers. So I think like it's been a really interesting ride from when CoinMarketCap started in 2013 up until today in the last six years. And how did you each come to work at CoinMarketCap and what did each of you do there? Sure. I'll start and Jero can go. So I, before CoinMarketCap, I founded and sold a company in the artificial intelligence space. So I really like uh, emerging technologies. Someone told me to read more about blockchain tech at that point. So I'd heard about Bitcoin before in 2013, again, 2015. So I was very interested and that's how I got into it. And I... Uh, somehow managed to meet the founder of CoinMarketCap. So I believed in the vision that he wanted to bring forth, and that was to showcase the crypto revolution to the world. And so I decided to join the team. So right now at CoinMarketCap, um, I started doing marketing, and now I'm the chief strategy officer there, basically helping to shape that vision to something that we can execute and also to bring CoinMarketCap to more people around the world. And Carolyn, before we move to Gerald, I just need to know, yes. you said somehow you just happened to meet Brandon Chess, <laughs> the founder of CoinMarketCap, which doesn't happen to pretty much anybody. So how did yes. that <laughs> so How did that happen? It is interesting to me because it happened through seven degrees of connection. So 
it was like someone put out an email chain and someone uh, wanted to look for someone who could help someone and so forth. And then it somehow landed up in my inbox. So I, when I went to New York for an event, I just decided to ask Brandon if he would like to meet and he agreed. So it was interesting for me at that point <laughs> to meet him. Oh, and just wait. And was it that you were looking for a job or that he was looking to hire? No, I, I think he was actually looking to expand to Asia. And I happened to be in Beijing at that time. So I wanted to have a conversation with him about that, like how I could help him there, or whether there was anything that we could collaborate on. So that was why we met in New York. Okay. All right. Well, we're going to talk about we're going to talk more about this mysterious Brandon Chess in a little bit. But Gerald, why don't you tell us what it is that you do at CoinMarketCap and how you came to work there? Sure, sure. Right. So before CoinMarketCap, uh, I started my career as a trader. I was trading bond futures, derivatives, trading market neutral strategies at, uh, at a prop trading firm. So what I did was arbitrage between bonds in the US versus bonds in uh, Australia, bonds in Germany and stuff like that. Right. So that was uh, how I started off as a trader. Uh, I entered this, the, the cryptocurrency space about one and a half years ago. Um, sometime in late 2018, when I was looking at Bitcoin futures as a trading uh, product, right? So that's how I that's how I founded Hashtag Capital with four or three other people. Uh, we started trading Bitcoin futures as our main as our main way of generating generating income, and one of our LPs was Brendan Chess himself. So we were doing a pretty good job, and he was having some problems with his site in terms of pricing algorithms as well as the the, the volumes that uh, we are seeing, right? Inflated volumes. So he kind of asked us, "Hey." You guys are doing a pretty good job in this trading trading space. Could you also help me in this uh in this in this way? Because we also had uh with our with our with all all our infrastructure in place, we had algorithms and pricing methodologies that took uh, all this into account to get better pricing for our trading strategies. So he acquired us hashtag capital. The four of us went on board the coin market cap team five months ago, sometime in late. Uh, sometime in late July 2019, and we've been there si- since. So what I do at CoinMarketCap is basically try to fix the problems that surface on the site in terms of pricing and in terms of inflated volumes. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, we're going to talk a lot about those issues later on. But first, let's talk a little bit more about the history of CoinMarketCap, which Carolyn alluded to a little bit. Uh, you mentioned that the site got started in 2013. How did it get started and what was the initial mission? Yes. So I think it really started as a site project for Brandon. So he wanted a way to value all kinds of cryptocurrencies. So he saw there were uh, quite a few of them coming up and he wanted to compare them versus Bitcoin, compare them versus each other. And so he built the project on the site. And so I, I think it really grew out of that in the last couple of years uh, from 2013 when he w- really wanted to just solve his own problem until today where I think that mission has grown bigger, where we really want to help to bring more discoverability and more efficiency to the crypto markets. And what had Brandon been doing before? Uh, he was a developer. But not in the trading space, right? Not not a finance. He didn't have a financial background. No. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, can you also explain how Brandon decided to focus on market cap, and and how he defined that as circulating supply? Yeah. So I think that when we started, Brandon really wanted 
a quick way for people to understand what they were comparing. And so he borrowed the market cap term from traditional finance. And he also borrowed volumes. He also borrowed um, public float. But in the context of crypto, he actually popularized the term circulating supply. So I think with those in mind, I think the rationale was if people understand already what market cap volume and public float were, they would be able to quickly get a sense of what he was trying to present on the site. And I think that made it really intuitive for people to understand uh, the numbers that they were that we're looking at. And even from the start, I feel like the phrase circulating supply was a little bit difficult in the sense that it wasn't always a clean definition for each of the coins. Can you talk about why it was difficult to use that term for the calculations? Yeah, I think when we look at supply right now today, there are there have been changes over time, right? So for example, uh, with supply, how we... Uh, Defining right now is anything that is freely tradable by users. Basically, if you are able to buy it off the open market, you would be able to uh, count that in the supply. Whereas uh, if it was being locked up or it was privately allocated, things that were not uh, possible for anyone to get their hands on, it would be uh, not circulating. Therefore, they would not be part of the circulating supply. So I think over the years, some things have changed. For example, how do you account for uh, staked tokens, for example? Those tend to be um, challenges that the team faces. So I think something that we're also working on, uh, other than the current definition, which is uh, our team looking at the block explorers, ensuring that we check with the team multiple times, what they are being used for, what where the tokens are, which wallets they're held, rich list, and so forth. Uh, and going forward, we will also be doing more research to verify that more quantitatively. So, Gerald, I think if you want to also add on. Yeah, sure. So from our studies of liquidity and whatnot, in terms of the, the new liquidity metric, we also see correlations between how it could apply to circling supply. Because in our, in our minds, everything that's circulated should be on an open market. And using our new liquidity metric, we can actually see what's available in the open market and use it to kind of like discern whether the, the, the numbers reported by the token project is accurate or not. So that's something that we are looking into in terms of data, data metrics. And that's something that we'll be excited to kind of launch in the, in the near future if there is something there. Yeah, yeah. I'm actually, I had a question for this that we'll probably get to a bit later because it gets a little bit in the weeds. But why don't we just talk about at least one example now? Because when I started thinking about this metric, the focus of using this metric for uh, this website, you know, it felt like it definitely made sense for Bitcoin where the circulating supply really was just determined by the monetary policy of Bitcoin, where you had this kind of like rapid inflation at the beginning, but then it tapers off, you know, pretty quickly. Um, and it's all just determined by the software. But then it sort of felt like, you know, once we hit the ICO era, it definitely became apparent how that uh, the focus of uh, uh, you know, circulating supply didn't make as much sense. And here's just one example, which is that, so for instance, right after the Gnosis crowd sale, I wrote uh, about the token and they did what was called like a Dutch reverse auction where they were intending to sell, they just wanted to sell, or sorry, they just wanted to raise $12.5 million. 
But then due to FOMO, <laughs> they ended up <laughs> selling only 4% of their tokens at $29 a piece. And so that gave, you know, that little chunk was the 12.5 million. But then when it hit exchanges, the price jumped from $29 to more than 300. So then suddenly the market cap for this like brand new project was $140 million. But then the thing is that was just based on the 4.2% that they'd sold, right? So if you looked at yep. the total amount, then suddenly like Gnosis would have been worth $4 billion when it like had barely even done anything. And so it just felt like at that point, like anybody coming to CoinMarketCap would have made a bad decision based on, you know, this concept of what, what the market cap was there, which was based on this circulating supply. So in general, like, you know, do you feel like it was during that time that, you know, during the ICO craze when this became apparent that there were downsides to using this metric. And at that time, did you guys consider changing the emphasis on circulating supply? Yes. So I think at that point in time, we did notice that there were things that could be improved. And I think it's true for many of the things on the site. And I'm sure we'll talk more about the other things that we will uh, continue to improve, <laughs> but specifically for supply. Uh, I think that there were many instances like the one that you mentioned for Gnosis and the supply methodology has actually evolved over time, but has kept the same understanding, which is basically the best approximation for the number of assets that are circulating in the market in the general public's hands. So instead of using um, metrics like total supply or things like that, I think what we are trying to do is basically to show that best approximation. And I think with what Gerald was saying, using more of that data-driven metric, maybe using a combination of liquidity and other metrics, we would be able to better uh, solve for this problem in the future in a way that's uh, fairer and also more transparent to the end user. All right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I feel like maybe that's more of a trading emphasis or something rather than this issue about um, what the coin is worth overall. But so we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that later on. But one other thing that I wanted to ask about during this, like, kind of historical, uh, just to cover the history of CoinMarketCap, mm -hmm. I feel like one of the moments when CoinMarketCap uh, became the most infamous was in January 2018, when Brandon just uh, without warning, decided to remove the activity of Korean exchanges from the prices on the site. And that basically slashed or it ostensibly slashed $100 billion off the total market cap for cryptocurrencies. At that time, was that just like a unilateral decision by him? Or, you know, did he do that in consultation with anybody? And like, what was behind the decision? And how did, you know, that decision making process happen? Yes. So I think in January last year, we noticed that some of the South Korean exchanges were skewing the site's average figures. So there was something that what people call kimchi premium. So we actually excluded the exchanges in our price calculations due to the divergence well, in prices from the, from the rest of the world. But when you say skewing, like why, why did you use that verb rather than because like like why 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 is it skewing rather than just part of what the price should be? 
Yes. So I would say that. So the main reason why it was skewing was because uh, it was not reflective of free market prices in the sense that unless you had access to a South Korean uh, KYC verified account, you would not be able to arbitrage on the difference. So it was not actually something that you could act on, even if you knew that this was part of the global average. So that was the reason why those numbers were kind of excluded from the numbers that we were showing on the site. And I think in hindsight, we definitely should have communicated better. We should definitely have uh, given notice. And I think we actually learned from that lesson to give a lot of advance notice after that for changes that were made to the methodology or any changes to exclusions in the data. And so at this point, since there is not much of a chemistry premium, if any, I presume that Korean exchanges, are are they factored back into the coin market cap data or not? They are. And they have always still been listed on the site. Oh, oh, but I mean, are they factored into the total market cap or not? In terms of market cap, I think that is not a factor of uh, of the of the price of the Korean exchanges because we factor circling supply and total price as a factor of Bitcoin and that itself. So whether we include the Korean exchanges or not, it's not a factor. But I, I do know that we do have those prices in our in our average as well right now. Yep. Okay. So if the kimchi premium emerges again, then what will you do? So I think we are trying to devise a way how to best aggregate prices across different jurisdictions. So for example, we have the US exchanges, we have the European exchanges, we have the Korean exchanges, and maybe even Chinese exchanges, right? So in, in terms of how we aggregate prices, what we plan to do in the future is to devise a way how we can use uh, every jurisdiction for itself. Let me let me give you an example. Uh, so for the US exchanges, we are now looking at, for the regular exchanges, we have Kraken, Coinbase, Gemini, and so on, right? So in terms of value of Bitcoin in USD terms, these exchanges would probably be the most relevant to kind of discern the value of Bitcoin in terms of USD. However, if you now look at the current exchanges, you're now looking at BitTerm, you're now looking at UpBit, and these are the exchanges that would be relevant for any Korean user that want to use, they want to find the price of Korean, uh, of Bitcoin in Korean won. Uh, the same could be applied for the, the Japanese exchanges. If there is, we find that there are capital controls and maybe even the Chinese exchanges, if uh, the OTC desk appears to have better info for debt pricing vis-a-vis the, the roaming P. So given that sort of data that we have, because we are actually listing all the exchanges around the world, we think that we can have a best price index for every single jurisdiction and hopefully that could materialize in the near future. Okay, so let me make sure that I understood this. So essentially, your go if something like the kimchi premium happens again, then you won't erase the data, but it will be primarily in Korean won or something. And so, in that way, it's compartmentalized from the other currencies. Is that what you were saying? Correct. So our aim is to be able to discern where. All where capital controls exist, where different currencies are differently reflected in terms of pricing, and kind of like give a, a, the the users in that country the best sort of price index for their for the use case. Because if a Korean uh, citizen, a Korean citizen wants to trade in Korean won and doesn't want to know the, the price of Bitcoin in Coinbase, for example, then we would try our best to cater to that use case and try to personalize that use in the future. Okay, and then just to compare it to what you were doing before where when he removed the Korean trading from the website and it slashed 
a huge amount off the total market cap for cryptocurrencies. That's because that was being averaged into the total value of Bitcoin in US dollars. Is that what the difference was? Yes, that's correct. So essentially what happened was because people in Korea wanted to buy Bitcoin more than the people in the in the States and uh, globally. So what happened was there was a kimchi premium and that caused uh, prices to go a lot higher in, in in the Korean exchanges. And that difference was you, you could not take action on that because in order to, to arbitrage the difference between both exchanges, you will need a Korean bank account and a US bank account, right? So to, to, to kind of execute the arbitrage. So we felt that because the, the arbitrage was, uh, could not be executed by most users, we decided to remove that kimchi premium altogether from our price aggregation calculation. Okay. Okay. This is super, 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 super interesting how all of this can affect you know, this very influential data website. Um, all right. So just a little bit more in the history. One thing I was curious about was you guys had this conference recently and Brandon did do an interview on stage, but he did it where he was masked and um, in shadow and his voice was anonymized by a microphone. But why go through all that effort when like his name is out there? It's not like, you know, it's not like Brandon is a student admits his real name. Yes, it is his real name. I think so. It's like he's like trying to be anonymous, but he's not anonymous. Yeah, I think he's not necessarily trying to be anonymous more than he's trying to be private. So we respect that philosophically. If people want to retain their privacy, that we would let them do that. And Brandon has always been pretty adamant that he would not like to be exposed um, personally. So especially with the conference recently um, that happened in November um, 2019. Like this was the first time that we had our conference. So he appeared on stage to host a fireside chat with Sunny King, who is actually anonymous, uh, and who is the inventor of Proof of Stake. So both of them were in masks and they had their voice modulated. But, you know, in this, at the same time, they managed to get their points across. I think that they still managed to remain influential and they re- managed to still uh, share their ideas on stage. And I think that's how they prefer it. So, like, we believe that if he would like to be private, just as Sunny would like to be private or any other anonymous creator would like to be private, it's probably best for them to, to do that because then they can do their best work without having to worry about the fact that they might be discovered or people might stalk them or anything like that. All right. So now talking a little bit more about kind of how coin market cap has changed over time, you know, I feel like for a long time it was just Brandon alone. And now you have, what is it like somewhere in the ballpark of 50 employees? We have about 30 employees now. Oh, 30. Globally. Okay. Yes. Okay. And so for a long time, CoinMarketCap also kind of was pretty limited in its scope to, you know, price or market cap data, exchange volume. And now, you know, just if I look back at all the different announcements of all the new things you guys are doing, you know, you're branching out into like metrics, you're organizing an industry alliance, you're doing blockchain explorers, you had this new conference. So how, what was the mission originally? How, and how has it changed over time and, you know, to what it is now? Yeah, I think... When it started, Brandon really wanted to solve the problem of how do you compare crypto against each other. And I think as the site became more popular over time, what happened was CoinMarketCap became bigger than that. Right now, it's in a position to lead 
with its influence of its voice. So that's actually led to us to realize that we need to do more. And that's why we have the industry alliance. That's why we're doing more in terms of putting out accurate data, making sure that everything can be uh, displayed in a way that crypto markets are more discoverable, more efficient. So uh, example of that, for example, is um, recently we launched a product called Interest by CoinMarketCap, which is a way for you to figure out where to earn or borrow crypto. And as a result of that, we've actually seen providers that are listed on this page, the same page, uh, starting to look at how they can make their yields better so that they can continue to be more efficient and more competitive against the others now that they're all being put on the same page. So things like that, um, as we aggregate more information, as we add more content to the site, I think the mission for us to make things more discoverable, more efficient globally will become more and more important because uh, we will keep growing our distribution channels, we'll keep growing our uh, amount of content that we have, and hopefully that will actually drive the industry forward. And historically, how has the site made money and how has that changed over time? Yeah, the site has always made money from advertising. So the, we have the, the banner that you see at the top of the page and banners around the site. And right now we are also experimenting with native uh, advertising as well. So for example, you have the blue buttons that you see on the cryptocurrency detail pages. We also have a mobile app now. So that's also another avenue. And our second revenue stream is actually the data. So we have a crypto API that we provide as a software subscription service. So we see exchanges, we see wallets, we see products that are using the data from us as part of their, of their own products or offerings. And right now we also have the conference, which is our third revenue stream. And do you have any demographics on your users or site visitors, whether yes. it's, you know, geography or age? Yeah. So I think that data is actually quite interesting for us. When I look at the data, most of our users are in like the 25 to 34 age range and about 60 to 70 percent of them are male. So that's kind of the demographics of the site. In terms of geographical numbers, the top for us last year was the U.S., followed by some European countries, for example, uh, Germany, Netherlands, UK, and then fifth place was Vietnam. And I think the other interesting numbers were tur was Turkey was 10th, and we see a country like Venezuela was 33, uh, things like that. And we actually had about 100 North Korean users last year on the site too. <laughs> Wait, really? Yeah. <laughs> hmm. I wonder if all 100 of them are Kim Jong-il. But... Um, <laughs> Interesting. Interesting. Although I guess you're counting unique users. So um, now I'm like, <laughs> I'm stuck on that because that's <laughs> fascinating. Um, the Vietnam thing was super interesting too. I don't feel like I've heard that much about trading there. Um, but I did know, you know, obviously Turkey and Venezuela. Um, and then what, it, what are like the behaviors that visitors exhibit on the site? Like, you know, can you buy their behavior, segment them out into like the people who are just kind of like compulsively checking the price versus people who are doing like, you know, more sophisticated research versus, you know, that kind of thing? Yes. So 
for the most part, most people do compulsively check the site. So I think the average is something like, like two to five times a day, depending on who the user is, sometimes even more. So I think the, the curve is around the two to five times a day mark. So that we can tell is still the most popular way of interacting with the site. So about 30% of all the page views are from the main page, but 70% are the long tail pages. So basically people clicking in. So from about two years before to now, we actually see the number of uh, pages that people look at increase over time. So I think it used to be something like 1.7 pages. Now we're up to about 3.2, 3.7 or so. So depending on, on which period. So I think like that has actually been quite encouraging because we could see that people are actually drilling down to see more. And also people are interacting with the tabs on the detail pages more, looking at analysis that we have added, looking at just news, social, and so forth on the site that we've added within the tabs. So I think it's actually a good thing. And it has informed a bit of our thinking around adding more content within those tabs and uh, allowing users to have a deeper experience. Because then, you know, for the for the people who are really trying to go deeper and understand more about the space, we should be the one place that they should be able to get that information without having to leave the page for that. Huh. Yeah, I'm definitely in the long tail group because I, you know, I'm writing this book right now and I'm doing a lot of research. So, um, <laughs> I, I'm in one of your, I'm in one of your categories. Um, and I heard you mention in another interview that coin market caps web traffic is 90% correlated to the Bitcoin price. Um, I actually, I'm not sure how old that interview is. So is that still true? And if so, like, has that changed over time? Like, is that more, common in like a bull market versus a bear market or is that consistent between the two and like do you think that's a problem i think so i remember running these numbers so we run it once a year at the end of the year so early on 2013 2014 2015 they were all consistently 99 percent. so when i ran the numbers at the end of 2018 last year it was 90 percent, which means it's gone down a little bit so i'm sure we will do another one end of this year so I yeah. find that it would actually be, well, generally had something. Yeah, sure. I can answer that. Like, because based on my, I'm doing some studies as well on my site, <laughs> to the statistical analyses. Um, it's actually quite interesting, right? Because, um, from, from what I'm seeing, I think our traffic is correlated to the volatility of Bitcoin, not so much the, the absolute returns of Bitcoin. And that's interesting because we realize that when there's a big bear market or when there's a big bull move in the, in, in, on the same day, we'll see a lot of traffic coming in to check the price of Bitcoin because that's what people are interested in. The movement of price in terms of how the absolute movement of price, whether it's up or down, when price moves, we get traffic. And that's, that, that's something that we have observed. Interesting. All right. So I know everybody's wondering about this fake volume issue. So we are going to talk about that after a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. Today's episode is brought to you by Kraken. Kraken is the best exchange in the world for buying and selling digital assets. With all the recent exchange hacks and other troubles, you want to trade on an exchange you can trust. Kraken's focus on security is utterly amazing. Their liquidity is deep and their fee structure is great with no minimum or hidden fees. They even reward you for trading so you can make more trades for less. If you're a beginner, you will find an easy on-ramp from five fiat currencies. 
And if you're an advanced trader, you'll love their 5x margin and futures trading. To learn more, please go to Kraken.com. That's K-R-A-K-E-N.com. Crypto.com sees the future of cryptocurrency in every wallet. Have you seen the MCO Visa card? A metal card powered by crypto. Loaded with perks including up to 5% back on all your spending and unlimited airport lounge access. They pay for your Spotify and Netflix too. What's not to love? With Crypto.com, not only can you spend your crypto, but you can grow it too. Earn up to 6% per year on the most popular coins like BTC, XRP, LTC, and up to 12% per year on stablecoins like PAX or TUSD. Just a few taps before you start receiving interest every week. Join the over 1 million others and download the Crypto.com app today. Will the world follow France and advocate banning privacy coins? Will government-backed stablecoins become the new fiat? Are distributed and peer-to-peer exchanges just a flash in the pan? The answer is maybe. Virtual currencies can flourish and create a new, private, and more versatile economy. But that grand vision can't happen without keeping crypto clean. And that requires support of governments and accountability for bad actors. Privacy-enhanced compliance using cryptographic controls has the potential to preserve anonymity without compromising legitimate investigations. CypherTrace is working on this vision of the future. Sign up to stay up to date on the Privacy-Enhanced Compliance Initiative and receive authoritative crypto AML reports quarterly. www.cyphertrace.com slash keep crypto clean. Back to my conversation with Carolyn Chan and Gerald Chi of CoinMarketCap. So actually, before we get to the fake volume, I do want to ask one other question, which is, you know, just to, to understand how CoinMarketCap works. What is the typical process for a coin or token to get listed, both in terms of like what the submitter has to do and then what CoinMarketCap has to do to, to get it listed? Sure. I think there are actually two different tracks. One is if you're a project, one is if you are an exchange. So for the projects, what you have to do is basically submit through a form that we have on the site, which is coinmarketcap.com slash request. Same thing for exchanges, but you go to different tracks. So for most of the projects and exchanges that list on our site, we actually encourage everyone to look at the methodology page because it tells you specifically what the listings team was looking for. So what happens is after you submit this form, it asks, like, as you're submitting this form, it asks you things like what this project is about, ask you for uniqueness, attraction, your community, things like that. So these are all things that the team um, is looking for on top of the requirements, uh, which is, you must have a functional site. It is a crypto. It is traded publicly and it has a representative from the exchange that from the project that we can actually speak to, uh, if we need to clarify. So that's the requirements for projects. So I find it's pretty straightforward. Some people who have said it takes a long time. Uh, it turns out usually that they have not provided all the information that the team is looking for. And so I would say for all listing requests, you should try to put as much information as possible in that form so that there's less back and forth because every time you reply, it goes back to the end of the queue. So um, that's for projects. And then for exchanges, there are some other requirements that are needed. For example, they must submit a summary endpoint uh, for, the, for their API. They must be in operation for at least 60 days. They must have 
all the book data that they can submit to us now, and also like a system status page that shows all the coin listings or details. And so anyone that is actually submitting on the behalf of the exchange, if they have the exchange email, will be prioritized. So I, I think with all of these, uh, the idea is that we are trying our best to list everything um, that comes on the site as long as they pass these requirements. And so we want to make sure that we can get everybody on, on the page. So recently we actually had an update to the methodology to include something called untracked listings. So even if you don't have markets that we're currently tracking, whether you're a project or exchange, we can still uh, make sure that we put you up as a listing on the site so that you have a page um, that you represent on CoinMarketCap and later on will add your markets as well. And uh, you wrote this blog post where you mentioned the most common customer complaints. And uh, it, it was kind of funny, frankly. Um, first was remove Exchange X because it is faking volumes. We will talk about this. I know everybody wants us to talk about this. Uh, sorry, there's just a lot of exposition first. Second, Project X is a scam. Please delist it. Otherwise, you are aiding and abetting these crooks. Three, please remove our pairs on Exchange X because we do not want our project to be associated with wash trading. And then complaint four, Exchange X has stolen my funds. Please issue an alert. So when you receive these complaints, do you like try to verify them? Like, especially for, you know, Project X is a scam. I did notice that, uh, for instance, Centra Tech, which the SEC called fraudulent, is not even listed anymore on the site. And then I just wondered, like, you know, would there have been any point in preserving the history of the trades? Because like, it looks to me like you just took it down. Yeah. So we definitely try not to censor any information. I think that's actually quite key to the philosophy. So if, so for all of the requests that come in, the team actually goes through them one by one and tries to verify every single one that, that happens. So for example, you talk about the scam. So I think scam is one that is really difficult because we're not trying to police um, any of the projects or exchanges, but we know that we should definitely look into it or issue alerts where necessary. So things like that, the team actually goes through, uh, has gone to talk to local police. They have talked to local authorities to help to verify some of these information that has been submitted for those that, are, that have been called a scam. But for the team as well, like they have also seen many projects which are not scams that people have called scams. And at the start, people even called Bitcoin a scam. So the team is pretty cautious about uh, not making those assumptions. So where there are regulatory alerts or uh, warnings that have been issued, what they do is to put up an alert saying uh, it's been put on this watch list and please be careful with your funds. And same thing for many of the others. Like uh, we have received complaints that it's really hard to withdraw funds from this exchange. So uh, be careful. Uh, putting your your funds into this exchange, things like that. So I think and, instead of so for the Centra yeah. Tech one, did you just decide to remove it because it was called fraudulent by the SEC? Centra Tech, I I don't know specifically for that, but there are usually two ways. One is uh, they no longer had any volume, so the team had to delist them based on our delisting policy, or the other would be. I think that's probably the most, uh, that's probably what happened. And then 
because we usually don't even we don't take projects down because people do want to see them for posterity. They want to see the history of the project. Uh, so our delisting criteria does have that, and also unless it was verified as a scam, in which case we would take them down as well, so that nobody would be oh, exposed okay. to that. Yeah. Okay. All right. So let's talk about this Bitwise report. Uh, this report came out in April and it said that 95% of Bitcoin trading was fake and most of the real trading was just on 10 exchanges. And they even launched this website, BitcoinTradeVolume.com, that shows trading volume only on those 10 exchanges. So before the report came out, was CoinMarketCap Coin aware that such a huge percentage of trading could potentially be fake? I think we started to notice the volume inflation problem last year. So we definitely were already looking at uh, solutions to this even before the report came out. And what we really wanted to avoid doing in the solution or in our brainstorming of the solution was to not do something similar to that, which is to label something as a good or bad exchange because I think that's binary. Like they, like Bitwise, for example, has also noted that uh, those that have inflated volumes might also have real liquidity on them. So that's one thing that we avoided. And the second thing we wanted to avoid was uh, to use an unscientific kind of correlation, for example, web traffic and um, volumes because you could trade by an API key or to also avoid things like simplistic ways of looking at volumes, like fixing order book depth percentage instead of going kind of down to the root cause of the problem. So we noticed that and we were actively trying to solve it by looking at the root cause of the problem. But the main point was we wanted a solution that could be really objective and would be applicable to thousands of assets because I don't I don't think we're in a position to say we can only focus on 10 exchanges or 10 uh, of the most uh, so-called important uh projects in the space. So for us, everything that we think about has to be applicable to the thousands of ad, of projects that we have to the site and the hundreds of exchanges that we have on the site. So that's why it took a, quite a long time because we had to backtest a lot of data to get to a solution that we currently have. Yeah, I can I can add something to that, right? So I think when Bitwise launched their their report as well as their metrics, um, they kind of had the focus of trying to convince the SEC that volumes in Bitcoin markets was only limited to the top ten. And the way they kind of did that was to use data points from the market from the from the exchanges from the order books to distill the difference between a, a legitimate exchange and an illegitimate exchange. And to do that, they focus very heavily on the Bitcoin market pair, Bitcoin USD market pair, and they use that as the baseline to decide whether exchange was washed or not. So the problems with, with, with that methodology was that they had to kind of distill their methodology and show the report in terms of the orders being placed on the markets, the trade sizing, um, the, the times where orders got executed. They did a pretty good job in trying to distill all these different market po- data points. But the moment they released the report, all the people, the, the people responsible for the wash trading could see what they were doing and essentially counter game their matrix. And that kind of make the, the, the report irrelevant for the next run they try to do it. So that's something that we also read in depth and we considered that, that sort of methodology. But we felt that if you could do something so, uh, so in depth and yet when you release the report, people could read it and say, Hey, 
this is what they're doing. Let us try to counter game it by doing something totally different. And that creates a problem that the, the, the wash train would still be there because, uh, the way they excluded exchanges and, and, and market pairs was very systematic and people could read that. Uh, that methodology and kind of game it. So that's something that we also be, uh, bore in mind when we design our liquidity matrix to try to not let something as easy as, as, as that be game. Yeah. Right. And it also sounds like maybe because their report really was focused on trying to persuade the SEC about a Bitcoin ETF that in a way it's sort of their purpose was just like different from yours um, because theirs was more targeted to this one regulator and you're serving this kind of global audience. So one, you know, thing that came out of it, of course, it and and like I actually, you know, just not knowing that you had been working on it before the report, it looked to me like your new liquidity metric was maybe in response to their report, but I mean it just sounds like it was in response to the fact that you know that this was a problem, this fake volume was a problem. So for you when you were working on this fake volume problem, like how did you define the problem? Did you see it the same way that um, Bitwise did, where we, you know the wash trading and all that, or and if so, or can you just describe how you you know saw that problem and then now also talk about your new liquidity metric and how it addresses that issue? Sure. Uh, let me try to run through the thought process behind the whole liquidity and volumes uh, matrix. So I think the, the first starting point of any discussion on, in this whole problem is the reason why we use volumes for, for, for ranking market pairs and exchanges. Uh, for A, because volumes has been the de facto matrix that has been used in traditional financial markets. And it's for good reason, right? Because in traditional financial markets, there is heavy regulatory oversight and it's very difficult for any trader or any anybody for the matter to wash trade because that is illegal and they'll be arrested for it and fined for that. So that is not the same for the cryptocurrency space because we have a dichotomy of either you have you you are regulated in the US for example or you're not in Seychelles and Malta and the the amount of regulatory, regulatory oversight for these two exchanges are completely different and a you have very strict uh, anti wash trading measures b you don't right so but the fact of the matter is all these exchanges in the cryptocurrency space matter because they are what makes the Bitcoin markets. It's decentralized and it's something that we have to live with. So if that's something that uh, we have to accept that volumes could potentially be faked because there is a lack of regulatory oversight from exchanges that are lo located elsewhere of the US, we then need to think about, hey, is volumes the right metric to use? Right. So for, for kind of like to, to go down to the basics, what is the use of volumes? If uh, So volumes mainly used to determine whether there's trading interest. So you see the top 10 active stocks on the, on the stock markets. You see the top 10 active yeah, bonds in, in, in the space. So that, that is one use case for volumes. The second use case for volumes would be essentially to determine liquidity. Uh, because for most parts, most traders want to trade on markets that are liquid. And the, the best way without looking at the actual order book would be to look at volumes if everything was uh, all regulated. So that's what I did last time when I was trading. If I wanted to find a market that was active and that had good liquidity, I'll look at the volumes reported. However, the same cannot be said once you have this regulatory, this deregulatory environment. And that's why we thought about this whole problem at large, right? So the reason why we use volumes on our site is to distill the liquidity that exists on exchanges and market pairs. So if we wanted to really define what liquidity meant, we then needed to design a matrix that 
measured liquidity and not volumes. So that is what we kind of sought to do. And the problems behind showing liquidity as a matrix is that A, it's always changing because all the orders, it's, it, we're trying to track, uh, transactional data that is not done yet. So, on one hand, you have volumes that is that tracks transactional data between two traders. On the other hand, you have uh, the order book that which is orders that are not yet executed in the markets. So that orders can always be cancelled, can always be placed. But the truth of the matter is, in every single market, what really matters is not liquid, uh, it's not volumes per se, but it's how liquid markets are. So the more liquid a market is, the more traders you could assume to be trading on there and the less slippage you get for trading there. So that creates uh, the, the kind of environment that we want to encourage, right? Liquidity is something that we want to encourage people to, to, to kind of promote, uh, to kind of promote their exchanges. And that's how we decided that liquidity as a metric is best used to serve the interests of both traders and retail users and everyone in the space at large. All right. Yeah. One other thing that you guys also announced um, kind of roughly in the same period was the Data Accountability and Transparency Alliance, which uh, has a convenient acronym, which is DATA. What does that group do? And you know, what kinds of problems are you trying to solve with that? Yeah, so in May of this year, we launched the DATA Alliance. So uh, what we really wanted to do with DATA is to talk about these issues that we were facing. So part of it, obviously, was the volume problem. So what we did with the partners that came on was we asked them for their thoughts on the problem. And when we did our first roundtable with the Data Alliance, we actually presented the first version of our liquidity metric there. So we talked about the components that would go in there, and we actually got some really good feedback uh, that made it into the final version of the liquidity metric that we see today. So I think that, you know, like one thing would be to provide feedback on things that would impact all of us. But also at the same time with the data alliance, it goes beyond that because we realized that people like the fact that people were trying to inflate or change the numbers on their end means that we just need more uh, transparency or more accountability as a whole in terms of uh, the industry for our data. So taking responsibility for that, I think we wanted to just rally people around this cause that we cared about, which is transparency, and hope that with more and more people joining us, we would be able to get a mass of people who, who cared about this problem and could solve this problem with us. So one thing would be to do these roundtables, but also um, we are working on a number of other initiatives. For example, something that we could do to unify tickers. So, you know, like the famous example that everyone cites is there are three or four different uh, projects, uh, as crypto assets that actually have the same ticker HOT. So with that in mind, uh, we're trying to see whether there's a way for us to unify things like that so that people cannot take advantage of the fact that some assets have the same tickers and try to pass them off as something else, for example. So that's another uh, transparency issue that we've noticed. So in the future, we're also looking at whether the alliance can do things like fund projects that are focused on transparency or fund other initiatives that uh, align with our philosophy around transparency and accountability in data. Well, I couldn't help but notice that some of the exchanges who partnered with you on this data alliance are some of the same exchanges that the Bitwise report 
showed were some of the most egregious when it came to fa- when it came to fake volumes. And then on the other hand, some of the exchanges that they cited as having real volume, such as Coinbase or Kraken, which I should disclose as a sponsor of this show, and Bitstamp are actually not a part of of the Data Alliance. So how did you go about choosing those members? Yeah. So I think for us, when we wanted to start with the start the Data Alliance, the idea was to work with any exchange that really has shown us that they want to fix this problem. So part of it was you have to work with people who might be accused or are doing it because you kind of want to know what they're thinking and how that affects them. So we actually took that into account that they submitted a very thoughtful response and they uh, gave us several solutions for how they would actually change it up. Uh, as part of the the process of working together on the alliance. So we were not filtering out specifically for what they were doing, but rather the intent behind it. And I think it has worked out because we see some of the the exchanges on there have provided really good feedback to us and that has affected into the way that we were thinking about the the way that we thought about the volume problem at that point in time. Yeah, and I'll just name some of the ones that uh, you know, the Bitwise report named as being the most egregious, which were Hit, BTC, OKX, and Huobi. And, and you know, those are the ones that are part of your alliance. But one thing that then I noticed was for your new liquidity metric, you know, I, I guess you're rolling it out in phases, but at least you can see it now for exchanges. And Hit, BTC is ranked first in liquidity, which, like I said, just a few months ago, it apparently had some of the highest fake volumes, Huobi was third and OKX was fourth. So then this made me question, you know, are they gaming the new liquidity metric? Like, do you think they actually have that much liquidity and somehow Bitwise was wrong? Or is it, I mean, it could be that, you know, since the report came out, they've now significantly cleaned up the trading and and also attracted real volume. But, you know, I just have to admit, like, given the backstory, it, it looked suspicious, especially since hit BTC, at least at this moment, is number one, but with like just a bit more liquidity than Binance. Like, like I don't know. It, it just looks very like, oh, like how convenient. We're, we're ahead of Binance, <laughs> which people should know, you know, is one of the ones with real volume that, or that, that was said had real volume. So anyway. Yeah. All right. Yeah, I think a few points to the question. I think the first point is hit BTC, why is hit BTC number one? Uh, I did look at the other books and for, for the most part, they did have legitimate liquidity. However, I can't say the same for volumes because that is always the question on everyone's minds, right? So in, in launching this whole liquidity matrix, we wanted to shift the focus on, on the minds of traders and, and people uh, in the space to kind of really distill what really matters. And that's what, and that's what we believe is liquidity. So the reason why they are above Binance is because mainly because they have a lot more market pairs. I think if you see on our site, they're listing 840 different market pairs, whereas Binance only has about 400, 500 different market pairs. So the more market pairs you have, the more liquidity you're providing to the space, the higher you would be ranked on that simple metric. So that's something that, um, hopefully, yeah, it's, for what it's worth, it's, they, they do provide liquidity to the space. Whether, do they wash trade? Um, I'm not too sure. I need a different sound metric altogether. But I mean, we could take Bitwise's word for that and say, hey, they do wash trade. But the, the flip side is, is wash trading really that important or is liquidity for the space more important? And I would argue the, the latter, not the former. 
All right. Yeah. I also want to talk about one other way in which another data provider has tried to respond to this issue. Crypto Compare took a pretty different tack from CoinMarketCap. And granted, I mean, that the sites, you know, have been different for quite a while. But uh, this summer, they began releasing this exchange benchmark report where they not only place less emphasis on volume, but they actually see that they don't even directly include it when they do the ranking. And they focus primarily on legal slash regulatory, security, and data provision. And that means they include factors like insurance, the experience of the team, uh, geography, and by geography, they mean like where the exchange is domiciled uh, to take into account kind of like whether or not it's in a jurisdiction with lower regulatory standards. So has CoinMarketCap ever considered including those kinds of factors when it ranks exchanges? Yeah. So when we thought about a metric that makes sense for us, I think what we were trying to optimize for was to make sure that we can first address the problem head on at the root. And I think many of the other solutions or ideas that came out as a result of the volume inflation tried to skirt around the problem by either focusing on a, a specific set of exchanges or some attribute that they deem more important, uh, like regulation or and so forth. So I, I don't think we are ruling out that. I think it depends on who uh, the market is targeted at. Because, for example, for Crypto Compare, like they might be using these benchmarks more because they're pursuing the institutional market where, you know, historically institutional markets will look for things like um specific venues that you could trade at, uh, like NASDAQ or whatever. So those specific ones you would try to get a sense of. Whereas I think for us, we are trying to go for the global um, retail audience. And so they need to know specifically if I'm trying to trade uh, an asset, where can I trade it for the best price with the least slippage? And that would help them to determine where they would get the best uh, outcome. Whereas you know, if we in- include other factors uh, that were less data driven based on every single, like the, the tens of thousands of market pairs that we have, then that would probably be a separate product or a packaging of a different uh, product that we would target differently than the current audience that we have on the site. All right. So um, I actually want to also circle back to something that we touched upon briefly more toward the beginning when Gerald talked about how he came to work at CoinMarketCap. Um, you know, obviously that was through the acquisition that you mentioned of your company, Hashtag Capital. And you talked about how you were focused on trying to offer a true price. So I just wondered, like, can you describe, you know, what are the problems that come up when you try to create a true price? I mean, we talked about this a little bit when we talked about the kimchi premium, but I didn't know if there were other issues. But I also was curious to know, like, how you even define true price. Sure. I think that's a very interesting question, right? So for the most part, um, in terms of how pricing works in, in, in crypto, in, in the space, it's very unique because this is the very first time we have an asset class that is truly decentralized in terms of its trading uh, venues. For most equities in the US, it's located in the New York Stock Exchange and the futures is on CME. You have very centralized exchanges that kind of and, uh, and cancellate all the liquidity of that asset class on, on that, on exchange. So for the very first time, we have multiple venues, uh, hundreds of venues for Bitcoin for the matter. 
And how do you then discern the true price of Bitcoin vis-a-vis all these different exchanges? So uh, in terms of how people have done it, so let me give you a few examples of how people have done it. Uh, the derivatives exchanges, for example, need a very robust price index because uh, the, the perpetual swaps, for example, will be priced using the few exchanges that they select. So for the most part, most people select uh, the user suspects such as Bit, uh, Coinbase, Kraken, Gemini, Bitstamp, right? Because these exchanges are, are, are the most regulated ones and they could kind of say like, hey, these are the most regulated ones. We trust the trades that are on there. Let us use these prices as uh, the baseline for index. The problem is you, you kind of forget the entire universe of cryptocurrency exchanges, the, the, the Binances, the Huobis, the OKEXs. Well, they may, like you rightly pointed out, they may have questionable volumes, but the truth of the matter is they have very legitimate liquidity, very large pools of liquidity that we need to take into account in terms of getting the true price of volume. So one problem in this whole in this whole equation is the exchanges on uh, in the US price their Bitcoin in USD terms. And that's USD that you can transact uh, from bank to bank, right? Because it's, it's, it's the same ecosystem. However, the most of the, the, the unregulated, unregulated exchanges, they price their Bitcoin in USDT. And that's a problem because USDT does not equate <laughs> most for the most part to USD. But the, 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 the point is, USDT, Bitcoin USDT pairs should also matter because they are the most li- one of the most liquid pairs. Binance, for example, Huobi, for example, they all have very liquid market pairs in terms of Bitcoin USDT. So the real question is, how do you then factor that uh, part in, in, in terms of how Bitcoin is priced vis-a-vis this entire ecosystem? And that's what we're trying to solve because we believe that only if you include all these different exchanges and different market pairs for Bitcoin, can you truly discern the true value of Bitcoin? And that's what we're trying to work towards. Wow. Wow. That sounds super fascinating. Super, super interesting. And so like, what does your technology do to get that truer price? Sure. So in terms of uh, how we kind of use it, uh, how we use our true price algorithm, imagine every single, um, every single market pair as an equation. So for example, you have Bitcoin USD on Coinbase as one equation, Bitcoin USD on Kraken as another equation, Bitcoin USDT on Binance as another equation. So you have essentially A over B, A over B, B over C, and all these equations have an answer. And that is the last time price of the market. So with this, kind of with all the different market pairs in the space, you have many, many equations, multiple, multiple equations. And the truth of the matter is there is a mathematical formula to solve the, the, to use the, these, the solutions to all these equations to arrive at an answer that best fits the, all the different assets that comprise the unknowns. So that is what we're, it, it's, it may seem complicated, but it's a matter of solving many multiple simultaneous equations to arrive at the best fit answer for all these different assets. And we believe that's the best way to find the true value of Bitcoin vis-a-vis any other asset that you want to price it with. All right. So before uh, we end here, I actually wanted to circle back to the circulating supply issue because I did refer to this controversy um, or I hinted at it in the beginning. Uh, but Carolyn, you wrote a little history of coin market cap and you talked about how even from the beginning when Ripple uh, was added, it started a controversy right away. And um, for a while to satisfy the different groups who were protesting, you guys even had two versions of the site. So what was that controversy about? I think at that point in time, people wanted to look at the different cryptos and 
XRP at that point, there were some contests over total supply, circulating supply, and things like that. So I think that that battle still continues today. But for the most part, if you look at XRP on the site, they have uh, what is currently in the hands of of people and what is not. And we actually take that uh, number instead of the total supply. So at that point, because there was so much contesting over like, is XRP really a crypto? Like what is XRP's true supply? Um, Brandon made the decision to actually spin off a different site. But later on, he realized that obviously it was unsustainable to keep two versions of the same site, one just because of one asset. So he put XRP back on the main site and it has continued the way that it is uh, today. <laughs> yeah. So let's dive into the issues there because so earlier this year, Ryan Selkis of Masari did a report on Ripple where he stated that due to the lockups and other selling restrictions, Ripple's circulating supply was quite a bit lower than what was shown on CoinMarketCap. And later, Ripple did uh, state that his report was based on an inc- incorrect calculation of, of market cap, but also said that even some of the assumptions he made around lockups were inaccurate. Although I will say that I know through my own reporting that at least one of them was completely accurate. So, um, you know, I'm not sure which one of the points Ripple was, you know, contesting. But anyway, you know, at this point in time, does CoinMarketCap, for instance, let's just start with the first point that Ryan made, which was about Jed McCaleb's allotment of XRP, which he is so restricted from selling that it's basically kind of like totally locked up. So does CoinMarketCap include the amount that Jed has in the circulating supply or, or not? Like, like what do you do with these kind of irregular type of situations? So I think we had something similar where people ask, do Satoshi's wallets count in the circulating supply of Bitcoin? So I think the team does deal with situations like that uh, for the most part. And But do you know how they've decided it? Yeah, so I think as long as it is possible to sell it, they would include it. So that was the decision that was made. So back to so, the but the in main, the case of yeah. Jed, where like legally he's he's restricted, then would those be counted or not? So as they as they unlock or as he is able to sell them, they would become circulating and they would be part of the numbers that they can the team can verify on the explorer. In which case, they would be counted in circulating. Oh, okay, so essentially, coin market cap excludes them at the moment because the amount that he can sell is like it's just it's like you know zero point whatever <laughs> or point <laughs> zero point zero you know that kind of thing. Yeah. And I think, in fact, when we talk about the origin, like the origin story of XRP on CMC, I think it was less about supply and it was more about uh, concentration of power, rather like centralization. So people were protesting XRP because they said it was centralized as opposed to the fact that uh, the supply numbers were not as expected. I think that was something that actually uh, took some time to develop as a story. Oh, 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 I see. Okay. So yeah. they weren't, they actually weren't taking issue with the, so it's, yeah. that was more like a thing Ryan did. Okay. I see. <laughs> um, well, all right. So, you know, we talked a little bit about 
the kind of traffic you see on your site based on the trends you're seeing in the site traffic or the way the activity is changing in the site. Where do you think the space is headed in the near term? Yeah, I think we have some theories there about what would happen. And obviously, none of them uh, we can verify at this moment. But for example, we do see uh, like a, over time, it's possible that there will be more concentration of assets. So maybe we concentrate to the top few hundred instead of the, the top few thousands is possible. So uh, I think that that's just part of the natural evolution of space. That's something that we notice. I think the second is people are interested also in crypto or even slightly non-crypto things like Libra. Um, so like the moment that we put Libra up on the site, we got lots of hits. It was like the top uh, crypto that was uh, top asset that was researched on that day. So I think as more and more of these types of assets come on the site, we do see uh, more mainstream interest in them beyond just the, the more kind of traditionally crypto asset uh, structures that we, that we are used to. And the third would be, around institutional and also pricing. So we talked a lot about liquidity. We talked a lot about how to price different assets. And I think that because of the fact it's so critical for someone to be able to provide that kind of accurate uh, pricing algorithm and things like that to the institutional space, we do see people uh, coming to us and actually asking us how we might be able to help with some of these solutions. And so kind of in totality, we see uh, a greater maturing of the space as compared to even just two years ago, where it was more of a craze. And now people are actually really looking at derivatives, really looking at yields, really looking at ways that they can price markets better, looking for more professional ways, basically, of, of charting and also interacting and buying and selling crypto. All right. Well, we will see uh, whether your predictions play out. <laughs> Thank you both so much for coming on Unchained. Where can people learn more about you and CoinMarketCap? So go to coinmarketcap.com. We have a ton of stuff in the navigation bar. If you've never clicked on that bar before, it has a ton of resources in there that would be really helpful. So check out uh, lots of our new products there. And you can also find us on social for with the handle at CoinMarketCap across all socials. Great. All right. Well, thank you both so much for coming on Unchained. Thank you, Laura. All right. Thank you, Laura. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about Carolyn, Gerald, and CoinMarketCap, check out the show notes inside your podcast player. If you're not yet subscribed to my other podcast, Unconfirmed, which is shorter, a bit newsier, and now features a short news recap, be sure to check that out. Also, find out what I think are the top crypto stories each week by signing up for my email newsletter at unchainedpodcast.com. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Faster Recording, Anthony Yoon, Daniel Ness, and Josh Durham. Thanks for listening.